Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. KGRA Radio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have a special guest, A.P. Sylvia, and he wrote a book called Vampires of Lore. Thanks for being on my show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So what inspired you to write the book? Um, Well, you know, I've always had kind of an interest in uh, supernatural beliefs and that kind of thing. Even back when I was a kid, I loved ghosts and stuff like that. So I've always had, uh, had, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, some kind of interest in these sorts of things. But um, some years ago, what really kind of, the event that kind of really sort of got me into writing the book was um, some years ago, I was in, um, I was in New York City in Times Square. I was uh, uh, walking around with uh, my girlfriend, who is now my wife. Um, and we were, you know, kind of seeing the sights and the sounds of Times Square. And we walked past a uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. Mm-hmm. And have you, have you ever been to one of those? Yeah, actually, I've been to the one in Times Square. Oh, perfect. Well, <laughs> I'm, then from, you... I'm from New Jersey, so I used to go there all the time. Okay, Square. great. Well, uh, you might have uh, seen the exhibit that I saw. So um, obviously, the Ripley's is filled with all kinds of great oddities and things like that, all sorts of interesting objects. Um, and in one part uh, of the museum, kind of down the bottom, it's got kind of a dungeony sort of feel, sort of spooky and stuff. And uh, behind glass, there, um, there's this one object. It's a box, and it's filled with um, vials and stakes and like a pistol and a, uh, a mold for silver bullets and such. And it's labeled as uh, a 19th century vampire killing kit. Uh, and it just has such a great aesthetic. It, it really looks, looks amazing. Uh, and I took a picture of it and I thought, wow, that was, that was really cool. And sort of according to the label, people would buy them, um, you know, if they were traveling to Eastern Europe and stuff like that. Right. And so, uh, sometime later, um, after that, after, uh, after that visit, I was, uh, I was thinking about that kit. I'm like, I'd like to learn more about these things, but what's the story behind these, these vampire killing kits? Uh, and so I, I took to the internet as one does. Uh, and I actually found that there was a bit of controversy surrounding them. Um, some folks maintain that they are authentic. Ripley's, Ripley says that they are authentic pieces. Um, other folks argue that they are not actually um, period. They, the argument is that uh, people in the 20th century took, um, took 19th century materials and sort of assembled these things. And one of the arguments about that is, well, the... The, if you look at the contents of the kits, they reflect more like the movie vampires than uh-huh. what people might have actually believed and that sort of thing. And that, and, that, and that kind of notion sort of got me on a different track of like, well, you know, I, I've, I've been aware for a long time that there were differences between kind of the movie vampires and what the, the folkloric beliefs of the past were surrounding them. Um, and so I started wondering like, well, what, what are all the differences Right. Like, what you know, I kind of I kind of wanted to list almost like give me a rundown of everything that, you know, we sort of think we know about vampires. And does it correspond to to actual beliefs and legends or is it some kind of product of of fiction? Uh, And I I was looking for something like that. And I really I couldn't find anything that kind of went through everything uh, and sort of summed it all up. So I kind of did some more research. I started looking around more and more and I ended up kind of writing the book that I wanted to read. And so that's how I sort of arrived at writing Vampires of Lore. So you discovered um, 
a need for something and fulfilled that need. There you go. Uh, so my understanding is of the vampire kits is that the are authentic and how they sort of came away. My understanding was how they came about was they, they would exhume like somebody's bodies and, um, and you know, their hair would have grown and their nails would have grown and it made them think that they were coming to life in the coffin. So they would stake them. Mm-hmm. Is, is there any truth to that? Yeah, so absolutely. So um, that kind of scenario uh, certainly happened uh, numerous times in the past in different ways. Um, and there are actual historical accounts of people doing that sort of thing. Um, sort of a kind of a, a rough way it would, it would often play out was, um, you know, someone uh, in, in a town in the village might, might kind of suddenly or unexpectedly pass away. Then uh, maybe another person uh, suddenly gets sick and dies uh, maybe in the not, you know, in not, not long after, and then maybe another person gets sick. And so, you know, think this is going back to like, say, 1700s, stuff like that. Um, so, th- so when people were seeing this kind of play out in their communities, they didn't necessarily understand that, oh, well, there's some kind of communicable disease going around or something like that that's infectious. Um, they, they wouldn't have really understood that. They were looking for some kind of answer there of like, why are these people who were seemingly healthy, they're, you know, and, and, and fine, suddenly they're getting sick and they're, you know, they're um, sort of withering away and that sort of thing. So they would kind of look back towards, well, you know, it all started when this person died. Well, let's take a look at this. Let's, let's dig this person up and let's see what's going on here. Let's see. And so what would have, they would, they would dig this person up. They would exhume the body. They would examine it. And um, they were expecting to see um, uh, a body that maybe had withered and decayed and was on its way to being a skeleton. And that's actually what kind of, even in modern times, we sort of would expect of, of, a, of a body, right? That's kind of the, you know, sort of what the, the general public might, might think happens. But actually, a lot of different things can happen during the decomposition process that might look, you know, unexpected or even kind of frightening. So, you know, depending on, depending on the situation, they might look in this corpse and they might say, oh, well, you know, this person doesn't look like they've decomposed at all. They, they look fresh. They look like they're, they're still alive. Um, now, depending on when the corpse was buried and the temperatures and all that, well, maybe it was just well-preserved. Um, the corpse might look like it was, um, like it had gained weight. Like the person actually looked plumper and healthier right. than they did when they were alive. Now, this can happen because of uh, a buildup of gases that, that happens during decomposition. But again, people are seeing this and that's how they're perceiving it. Um, you know, when skin recedes, it might look like, you know, or uh, when skin recedes and the nail, nails might fall off, it might look like new nails have grown, they might look fresh, that sort of thing. So different aspects, kind of like you said, um, might sort of play into this notion that the, the body that's in the ground is actually still alive in some way, that it is maintaining vitality through the taking of life of the living. Interesting. I don't know. It's kind of funny. I just can't imagine. I mean, I guess I could imagine just like going out at night and digging up a body. And going, huh. Looks like Charlie gained a few pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, and I think it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you sort of, you try to put yourself in the mindset of, 
of when this, of, you know, kind of the people who are experiencing this. And this happened, I mean, this, this happened, you know, even, uh, even um, like one incident happened in the late 1800s in New England. Um, so, you know, you have to sort of imagine sort of the desperation that these people might have been feeling. You know, they're seeing their loved ones get sick, get die, you know, get sick and die. And then another person is sick and they're just, they're, they're looking for a way to, to save that person, right? And to save everybody else. So you can only imagine how desperate they were to, to go to those lengths to exhume a loved one and then mutilate the corpse in some fashion. I mean, I mean it's, it's, you know, very traumatic for, for all involved, I'm, I'm sure. But, you know, I'm sure at the time they didn't want to leave any stone unturned, right? If there's a chance, even if it's a long shot, that this might, might save somebody, um, you know, they, they felt compelled to do it. Interesting. So I, I think a lot of people, when we when think of vampires now, um, associate it with this, this story of Vlad. Yes. And um, Vlad the Impaler. Yes, yes. Um, is that the, where the story actually originated or does it go back further? Uh, or, it, or, or was that just made up from Hollywood because of the name? Sure. So um, vampires abso- absolutely predate Vlad the Impaler. The, the connection that's often made with Vlad the Impaler is with uh, Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. So often if you, if you watch like a documentary about vampires or something like that, they're going to bring up, oh, you know, Stoker based Count Dracula on Vlad the Impaler. He was like the, the real life historical Count Dracula, that kind of thing. That's often where, where the, the, tie, the tie is made. Um, so a lot's been made of that kind of relationship. Um, but, you know, from what I've looked at and I've, I've read some different work about it, I've, read the, uh, I've looked at the work of uh, Dr. Elizabeth Miller, who did, who did a lot of research into this. Um, you know, Stoker... Actually, it, it seems from, from the evidence that, that can be said for certain that Stoker knew, uh, he didn't know much about Vlad the Impaler. He knew a little bit. He read like one reference to Vlad in, in a book uh, about kind of the histories of that area. Uh, and it mentions, it actually never, it never even mentions Vlad's name. It just says that there was this prince, uh, this, the prince uh, Vovo, uh, uh, Voivode is, is what he was, uh, the title he had. Uh, named Dracula, and he fought against uh, the Ottomans, and uh, he, you know, he was, you know, victorious. And it also, this book mentions that Dracula means devil. And so that kind of, that sort of caught Stoker's eye when he was writing Dracula. And so he named his character after Vlad. So Vlad was, um, he ruled, uh, a country called uh, Wallachia, which is now part of Romania, in the 1400s. So he was, as I said, he was the voivode, which was, was like the prince. Um, and he historically is known for being a very brutal ruler. Uh, like his name would suggest, uh, he, the impaler, he impaled thousands of people. Um, he lived in a time that was very brutal. And his position as ruler was very precarious. Uh, he had, you know, he had Hungary, which was like a large power on the one side of him. He had the Ottoman Empire on the other, other side of him. Um, and so he was kind of constantly under threat from different sides. He actually ruled three separate times because he kind of lost his throne and regained it and stuff like that. So his, 
his brutality sort of in part was to sort of keep him in power. And, you know, some people think it was, it also sort of served as psychological warfare and that kind of thing. Um, his name, Dracula, uh, actually comes from his father. His father, Vlad II, was a member of an order of knighthood, um, the Order of the Dragon. Um, Dracul means dragon. Uh, Dracula means son of the dragon. So that was, that was, he took that, he took that name. Um, apparently can also mean devil. And that's what caught Stoker's eye when he was writing. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of the big relationship there is that Stoker knew, uh, you know, heard the name Dracula and knew a little bit about him. Uh, if you read the novel, at one point Van Helsing's talking about Dracula and who he was, and he references things that seem like it kind of pretty clearly came from this book that Stoker read. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, theories about, oh, well, Stoker also read this, or he also talked to this person who knew this about, about Vlad, and, you know, he, he might have known all these different things, but none of that can be said for certain. Um, Stoker doesn't mention more in the novel than, than kind of um, some quick tidbits. Um, another thing that often gets brought up with the, the Vlad, you know, vampire connection is there was this contemporary poem written about Vlad where, you know, it said that he, um, he dipped his bread in, in the blood of his victims and then ate it. Um, but it's also been said that that was, that was a mistranslation and he actually washed his hands in the blood of his victims. Still quite disturbing, but not vampiric. <laughs> um, so that's so that's kind of it so you know there's this kind of tenuous connection between sort of stoker and the historical vlad um but you know no one during the time period as far as i understand believed that vlad was a vampire that has something that's kind of come later um and actually as i understand it uh these days in romania he's regarded by some as kind of a, a national hero because he sort of fought to keep his country uh from you know from safe from invaders and that kind of thing Oh, he certainly went to any length, that's for sure. Very true. So where does the story of vampires actually begin? Well, you know, that's uh, an interesting question. And it sort of depends on how you want to define what a vampire is. Um, and that's something that I, I made an effort in my book to early on sort of define, this is what I mean by a vampire. Because if you read different books on vampires and, and, and you know, legends and mythology and stuff like that, sometimes like people will use the term vampire for all kinds of different creatures that suck blood or drink blood and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when you're casting kind of a, a broad net like that, you might bring in all kinds of supernatural creatures. Mm -hmm. You know, with that in mind, some people, you know, I've heard the argument claim like, oh, well, it goes back you know, vampire, vampires go back to like the Old Testament with the story of Lilith, who was the, the first wife of Adam. Um, and um, because she wouldn't submit to him, she leaves and ultimately sort of turns into this demon that, um, you know, uh, uh, steals the life of children and stuff like that. Um, but to me, like that's, that isn't necessarily a vampire. Um, my, my view of of a vampire, the definition that the criteria that I used in my book, um, I, there are basically three things that, that, that I kind of pointed out. They said, these are the three criteria for me to consider this, you know, the story to be vampiric. What um, are the three? So the, the first one was that the vampire is the corpse of a once living person. So the vampire used to be a real life human being. 
it's not some kind of demon or supernatural entity that was never human, that was always just something else, right? Kind of floating around out there. This used to be a real person who has died. Uh, the second criteria is that uh, the corpse is harming people in some way. So I don't actually narrow it down to say it has to be drinking blood. It has to just be harming the living in some fashion. Because when you get into some of these stories, there's, there's all kinds of, kind of different things that are attributed to vampires and you know, people are, uh, what the supposed experiences are and that sort of thing. And lastly, um, in order to destroy the vampire, action has to be taken against the corpse itself. So it's a, a physical tangible thing. There's a physicality to vampires. It's not just like a ghost, you know, that's kind of just floating, you know, kind of just floating around and is incorporeal and, you know, maybe with a ghost, you just have to banish it or something like that. Like vampires, they're, they're physical creatures, they're, they're corpses, they're physical things. Um, and so that was kind of, that was my criteria. And that's how I, and, and some people, you know, other people may cast a wider net, they might, might cast a narrow net, but that was, that was kind of my take on it because I feel like that kind of focuses in on some of the psychological implications of, of vampires, which oftentimes involved like a fear of the dead, a fear that the dead could bring you harm, and a misunderstanding about the natural world, about decomposition, those kinds of things. So I feel like with that definition, that kind of brings forward those, those elements. Um, but I mean, you want to talk, I mean, so in terms of when did vampires start, I think they, they go back well into history, um, you know, possibly pre-recorded history. I mean, one of the, one of the stories, uh, one of the, the tales in my book I talk about, uh, dates back to, uh, the 12th century. So that's, you know, way before kind of the, you know, so Victorian sort of notion we have about vampires or something like that. It almost, like when you give me that description of, of how you define a vampire, it almost sounds like something that would come from Santeria. I'm not sure I'm familiar with that. Um, voodoo, like Haitian voodoo. Mm-hmm. So like kind of like a zombie sort of thing? Sort of, yeah. Like they used to, you know how they would use like zombie dust? Mm-hmm. And, and a person would appear to be dead, and then he'd suddenly come back because they weren't really dead. I mean, I've, I've um, certainly not something I've personally researched. I've kind of heard about these sorts of things um, uh, with sort of the, the you know, the, zo the zombie lore and that, and that. I mean, I think, you know, with our sort of modern notions of what zombies are, kind of these reanimated corpses that are walking around and stuff like that, I think there is, there's, there's a similarity to vampires there, I think. Um, you know, especially when you go to, the vampires of folklore, which aren't kind of like, you know, suave and hanging around castles and stuff like that, the way, you know, sort of uh, uh, movie vampires would be. So, <laughs> you think it goes back to about the 12th century now? Well, that's one of the earlier stories. I, I think it probably goes back much further than that. I think it's, I think it's something that is probably deep-seated in sort of human psychology are these fears and these misunderstandings. That's just sort of one, one story that mm -hmm. I found that's, you know, quite old. Um, about like, um, cause another thing that kind of fits your description too is Egyptian, you know, like the mummification of the dead. 
Sure. I mean, human, you know, humanity's notion that there is an afterlife of some kind of supernatural of what happens to the body. Um, you know, there's all kinds of different interpretations of that, but yeah, I mean, when you look at sort of the Egyptians belief, they had, a, they had a very kind of, uh, they had a very rich supernatural religious belief, right. About what happens to the soul and preserving the body and how, you know, sort of the nature of the body here affects the nature of the, of the soul and the soul's body in the afterlife, right? That importance of preserving the body. Um, so, you know, I think you, you find these kinds of notions, these kinds of thoughts um, in different ways, in different forms, probably throughout history and throughout cultures. Yeah, I think, yeah, it was Anne Rice. The Anne Rice book, she sort of worked the Egyptian angle on it. Yeah, I'm not, I, I haven't read Anne Rice's books. I've seen, uh, you know, some of the movies and that kind of thing. Um, but I, that does sound familiar that that kind of was, was worked in. And it makes sense. And it, it makes sense because you're sort of drawing, you're drawing on, you know, sort of uh, an ancient, uh, you know, sort of ancient beliefs around the undead, right? Yes. Um, so how, do you, how did it progress? Okay. You know, we got these, these 12, something that was people believed in, in the 12th century. And now here we are in 2020, and it's still a popular thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's sort of one of the things that I found very interesting about vampires is kind of their adaptability. And they have evolved over the years to sort of, I think, um, fulfill, you know, sort of fulfill certain needs. So when you look at, you know, some of the historical vampire accounts, say from the set, you know, whether it's 12th century, say the 1700s or the 1800s or something like that, right? You know, these are situations where people um, were facing uh, some kind of calamity, some kind of illness, um, some kind of, you know, crisis, and they're looking to explain it. They're looking to place blame, right? And so their, their mind tur- turns, turns towards the dead. They blame the dead for this thing. And now with that in their mind, they can now take action against the dead. So they say, okay, well, we know that we know, we believe that this dead person is causing these other people to die. We, we know that this dead person is causing the drought that is hurting our, our crops. That, that, that w- uh, was a belief as well. Um, so now we can take action against this, this corpse, you know, we, you know, and there's, there's different, there were different beliefs in terms of what needed to be done to the corpse to sort of stop it from terrorizing people. But, you know, once they did do that, you know, perhaps that provided some kind of relief catharsis. Um, obviously it wasn't really solving any problems, but it gave people an outlet to, to focus that energy. Right. And, you know, maybe they believed it, it helped them. Um, as time goes on, obviously, now, you know, we understand more about, you know, about disease and, and, and how these things work and stuff like that, right? So this doesn't necessarily, this kind of problem doesn't, doesn't come up, that doesn't resonate. But in sort of the, the 19th century, right, um, there is some different lit- sort of literature kind of takes the vampire, adopts it. And, and, cha- and changes it. So a number of sort of important literary works came out in the 1800s that, that refocused the vampire and introduced a number of kind of 
characteristics or tropes that we recognize today. And what happens in kind of the, uh, the 19th century literature is that the vampire suddenly uh, becomes very well-to-do. You have a number of sort of uh, aristocratic or noble vampires that are now, they're infiltrating high society, right? And so I think that, that resonated with readers. Now, obviously, these are fictional books. People knew this wasn't real, um, but they were good stories, and so you had to take the vampire out of its kind of like um, out of its sort of folkloric context and they put it, they sort of reframed it as this person who can now infiltrate, infiltrate high society. And you might run into one of these, these dangerous creatures at, you know, at a fancy party or something. Um, and even I think when you look at movies today, one of the things that gets played up a lot about vampires is their immortality, right? Yes. Um, and when you think, when you kind of take, take a step back and think about it, it's like, you know, yes, we understand disease and we have, we have medicines now that can cure things, stuff like that. But science hasn't conquered aging and death. That's still something that is with us. So I think that's why the movie vampires resonate with audiences now is because they are overcoming death. They, they are, they're overcoming that fear that we have of death but at the same time the vampire pays a price for that right that you know now they're they're cursed in a way and so you know i think that also speaks to us on the notion that you know perhaps nature shouldn't be subverted and so that's how i sort of see the vampire has grown and changed and adapted over time and sort of still speaks to us today but in a different way where does the drinking of blood come into this? So that was a folkloric belief um, that uh, the vampires were consuming blood from the victims, though not always. Um, there's one interesting account. Uh, it was um, from the 1700s. Uh, this village was being terrorized by a person who had recently passed away. Uh, the The name of the person was Peter Plagojewitz. Um, and the people would describe how in the night he would, he would come into their rooms and he would, he would kind of go on top of them and strangle them. And ultimately uh, when the corpse is exhumed, uh, the people look at the corpse and they see these kind of vampiric signs, you know, the, the body hadn't, uh, uh, hadn't decomposed as expected and that sort of thing. One of the other things they say is blood around the mouth of the corpse. And they take that to mean, oh, the vampire was, was taking the blood. That's the blood that the vampire was sucking out of, out of his victims, and that's what was causing people to die. Um, and so that is actually something that uh, can happen. That can happen in normal decomposition, that fluids can actually build up and come out of the mouth. Um, so that is... There, is uh, a potential kind of like scientific explanation for, for why people would have believed in the blood drinking. Of course, blood is also tied to life. Um, so there's spiritual implications to that uh, as well. And in fact, going back to even that, that story from the, uh, from the 12th century, um, they, there's, this, there's a, a vampire that's terrorizing a village and when they exhume the vampire, it's, it's uh, bloated. 
And when they, when they pierce it, blood comes out and um, they, they say that it's like, it was like a leech that had taken the blood of many people. Um, and they use the term, the, in the Latin version of the story, they use the term sanguisuga, which translates to leech, but quite literally translates to bloodsucker. Um, so you kind of, there's, so that is, so the blood drinking uh, very much established in folklore and obviously has continued uh, into today. Um, is it Nosferatu and a vampire the same thing? Yeah, sure. So um, Nosferatu, uh, the term originally comes from um, a, an article written by Emily Gerard in the 1800s. Uh, she, uh, I think, I believe the article was called Transylvanian Superstitions. Uh, she spent time in Transylvania and uh, she, uh, she mentions that Nosferatu is another word they use for vampires. Um, the, uh, then of course the, the word is, uh, the word ends up getting used uh, in uh, Stoker's novel, novel, I believe. I think Van Helsing at one point, one point says it. Um, and of course, famously, there is the movie from uh, the black and white film, silent film from the 1920s, yeah. uh, Nosferatu, German, uh, German movie. Um, it's actually, that's kind of a, a, an interesting sort of story around that, around that movie. Um, have you ever seen it? It's pretty good. Yeah, I have seen it. Yeah, it's good. I mean, obviously it's, it's a black and white silent film. So, you know, any modern, you know, modern audiences watching it would have to <laughs> sort of put yourself, you know, kind of prepare yourself for that. Uh, but it, it's, it's quite, a, it's quite atmospheric. Um, so the, the production company that did Nosferatu, uh, Prana Films, um, they wanted to do the Dracula movie, but they didn't get the rights to the novel. So what they did was they just, they just changed a bunch of details uh, in the plot, hoping to sort of avoid any infringement. So like they changed... Uh, some of the the names of the characters. So like the vampire in Nosferatu is named Count Orlock instead of Count Dracula. Um, and, you know, so they changed some different plot elements and kind of how the vampires killed in the end and stuff like that. Um, and so they released this film and um, Bram Stoker's widow uh, sues them for copyright infringement and she wins. And the judge orders the film to be destroyed. Uh, but thankfully some copies survive. And so we still have it today. Um, and it, and uh, it's, it's quite, it's quite an iconic film. So it's, it's nice that it, it's nice that it survived that purging. Another thing, you know, how, how did we get from bloated corpses to something that's eroticized? So that's, you know, I think that's, that happened, I think with, that 19th century literature. Um, one of, probably like one of the first stories to do that, it was a novella by, um, by this guy named uh, Polidori. And he wrote, wrote this story about a vampire who, um, his name is uh, Lord Ruthven. And he's this um, kind of mysterious nobleman, uh, aloof, and people, you know, uh, people are drawn to him. Women are drawn to him and stuff like that. And he turns out to be a vampire. Um, Polidori was uh, the personal doctor of the famous po poet Lord Byron. 
uh, and the two men did not get along. So some people uh, have some people wonder if Polidori uh, sort of based Lord Ruthven on Lord Byron, but also made him a vampire. Um, and when when uh, the when the the book uh, the van, you know it's called the vampire uh, when it first came, when it first came out it was attributed to Lord Byron so it became quite popular and then it turned out it was from Polidori. Um, and the, the two men both try to clear that up, but it, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of the whole, the whole thing, it, it gained a lot of notoriety. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, that was probably one of the turning points where you, where you changed from kind of this, this kind of, you know, scary, terrorizing undead creature to now the kind of suave, alluring vampire that we're so familiar with today i think that was kind of the turning point right there was in was in that novella i think also in uh in in bram stoker's um dracula um i remember a section i think and it has it was like lucy's dream Mm -hmm. where where she has like an, an erotic dream uh, like during, like, uh, well, because she was sleepwalking, the, yeah. the whole section where she's sleepwalking and the Count is controlling her and all that. There's a lot, I mean, Stoker's novel came out, so, like, Polidori's uh, novella came out, it was, like, 1819. Stoker's novel came out, it was 1897. So okay. his was actually very late in the, it was, uh, you know, right at the tail end of the 1800s. It was in, there was uh, some other works that predate his that kind of, set things on a trajectory um and then you know stoker kind of comes in and makes this kind of opus opus with it but there's a lot of kind of you know sensual or erotic kind of notions in in that book which probably would have uh spoken a lot to the victorian readers you know it would have kind of resonated with them because all these things are you know you're not supposed to talk about this stuff so you kind of veil it in these other things and and that probably sort of helps with you know sort of helps with its popularity um so so do do you personally believe that that the vampires are strictly myth and lore and that there really is no such thing well you know um it's a big world out there so you never know um i think there there certainly are people that um have supernatural beliefs that uh incorporate vampires or incorporate something along those lines um, from the, the stories I've read, the, the historical accounts and all that, uh, I've, I've yet to be convinced that there are corpses actually rising up and, and going after people. Um, but I, I certainly believe, especially in the historical accounts, that the vampires were very real to the people who believed in them and who were taking action against them. Uh, the, that was, it was very real and very terrifying. Uh, in their minds. Could some of those stories be attributed to the art of necromancy? Oh, like speaking with the dead and that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah, you know, trying um, to use corpses as oracles. As oracles. Um, that never really came up in my research. One of the, one of the, there's sort of a laundry list of things that might make you become a vampire. So in, in, you know, in movies and stuff like that, you become a vampire by getting bitten by a vampire more or less, right? You're this, you, gotta, yeah. you, gotta, you, you become a vampire from another vampire, essentially. 
in movies, right? Um, by and large, uh, in folklore, there was like a laundry list of things that could ha- that could make you a vampire. Uh, one of which was if you performed magic, if you were like performed dark magic or something like that, uh, you you were at risk of becoming a, a vampire. Um, and actually, uh, in some in some beliefs uh, in Romania, there was you know a word used for vampire was strigoi. And a strigoi could actually be a, a living person or a dead one. So they were a magic user in life, and then they become a vampire after death. And so really, when you, it, was, it was just sort of part of their life cycle. So the vampire was sort of a part of this life cycle. Um, so when you said it, when you talked about a, uh, a strigoi, it could be uh, a person who was still alive or who had died and was now a vampire and, so, and the vampires might teach magic to the, the living, the, the living Strigoi and stuff like that. So vampires often fit into sort of a wider supernatural belief system. Uh, and there was a lot, and there was lots of overlap between vampires and witches and werewolves and things like that. Um, the, you know, sort of in these days, you know, with movies and stuff, you, you, you tend to sort of put, uh, you put sort of different creatures in different boxes. Like this is a vampire and this is its rules and this is a werewolf and this is, you know, and this is a witch. Um, but, you know, in folklore, they didn't have necessarily all these boxes. Things could kind of influence other things uh, and there were sort of loose borders and stuff. Um, so that, so that's, that's kind of um, something I found interesting in my research is that, you know, one supernatural belief may influence uh, another one or be influenced by another one. Um, how about vampirism as a religion? Because, you know, like, like there are people who kind of look at it now as like a religion and drink each other's blood and stuff like that. Yeah, um, that's something I've, uh, I have not sort of done research in that area. It's something I, you know, I kind of hear about and run across a little bit. There are people who, um, they, you know, like they're psychic vampire, they, they claim to be psychic vampires, right? They believe that they need to feed off psychic energy. And there's some people that believe that they actually do need to consume like, you know, small amounts of, of blood to sort of feel normal or something like that. Um, and then there's other people that just like the aesthetic of vampires. And so they kind of dress, they, they dress like, you know, sort of a, you know, 19th century um, gothic sort of look and, and decorate in that way and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I think there, there's, there's, you know, different communities out there uh, with people who sort of identify in different ways. Um, again, not, not something I've necessarily researched. I've never, I've never spoken to those folks. So um, I'm probably not the best person to sort of explain it or uh, speak about it because I don't have, I, I haven't had those sort of first, firsthand conversations. So during your research for this book, what is the uh, most bizarre thing or the most surprising thing that you discovered? Well, I would say, well, I found there's a lot of interesting things I found, different, strange, you know, um, things you wouldn't expect, uh, unique beliefs and stuff like that. Um, probably one, one thing that uh, listeners might be surprised by um, and I guess I should, uh, maybe I'll sort of explain a bit the structure of the book. Basically every chapter, I, I sort of, I, I identify a trait that we associate with, associate with vampires. And then I attempt to um, 
find you know determine if there are any sort of folkloric precedents for there for them uh if if there is then i'll share some of those stories if there isn't i'll try to determine when it was introduced into you know sort of our modern thinking so um sort of every chapter kind of focuses on a trait so the one trait that i think maybe is is most iconic um for uh you know for vampires you know in our sort of vampire imagery um, is the fangs, right? If you're watching a show and someone sort of turns to the camera and they smile menacingly and they have those, those you know, canines, those extended canine teeth, um, you immediately can, oh, it's a vampire, right? Like, oh, right. it's got to be a vampire. They've got fangs. That's it, right? That's, that's, sort of the, that's sort of the rule. So it's this kind of very, very immediate visual cue uh, to the modern viewer that, that, that this is a vampire. And so the surprising thing, I think, probably for, for myself and, and listeners, is that in folklore, vampires don't have fangs. It never comes up. It's not mentioned that they have fangs. Um, it's, it's not described. Um, they're actually not present in the, the legends and the folkloric beliefs. Um, How do they draw blood? Well, it's, um, sometimes it's simply not, it's not addressed that how, how they how they would draw this you know people saw the blood around the mouth and that was kind of good enough good enough for them um there was one belief that was interesting where they thought the vampire had like um a barb on the end of its tongue that was kind of like a stinger or something like that there was one belief surrounding that and uh there was uh, a story uh a russian tale of uh, of uh, a woman who was being terrorized by her uh, her deceased husband who was a vampire and like a mark is, is mentioned on her neck, but it's not the two fang marks. It's just a singular mark. Um, so that I, I often wonder if like, Oh, was that kind of incorporating that barbed tongue? There's one, there's actually one interesting story where a vampire goes into, uh, it goes into someone's house and like strikes them on the back of, of, uh, strikes them on, on their back and creates like a, a, a like a cut that then they, the blood, they put the blood into like a pail and, it, and the vampire takes it away. So there's a lot of interesting, interesting tales like that. Um, there are some stories that mention vampires having long teeth, um, which off, I think oftentimes people reading that will go, oh, you know, that, those are the fangs. But they don't say fangs. They say, they say that the teeth are long. Um, we, we walk into things expecting fangs, so we will read details a certain way, I think. Um, so I think that that can that can happen, but 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 fangs or the long canines are never mentioned. The long teeth you you could hypothesize might be um, uh, interp you know an interpretation of uh, like gums receding during um, during decomposition or something like that. But the fangs uh, actually uh, first uh, first get introduced uh, again in the uh, the nineteenth century literature in kind uh, of in a penny dreadful called Varney the Vampire which was uh, like a long running Penny Dreadful that then got assembled into a novel, which is like 800 pages or something like that. But that's where it actually, it says that the vampire um, had these like, um, like tusk like teeth that left the two marks in the neck. Um, and so for us, it's, uh, you know, I often think about like for us, that's, that's a given with vampire stories, but you know, it must've seemed very sort of fresh and new uh, to Victorian readers who uh, who were sort of being exposed to that kind of imagery for the first time? Interesting. How, how about 
um, the association with bats. What came first, the vampire bat or the vampire lore? Uh, vampire lore came first. Uh, the vampire bat is named for the monster, for the vampire lore. Um, so the, the interesting thing, the thing to note about vampires, and, and you know, oftentimes I think people like to think, oh, well, there's a bat that, that drinks blood. And vampire bats are a real thing. They're, they're a real animal that, that they, they do survive on, on blood. Um, you know, it seems so perfect, right? Like, oh, there's this animal that drinks blood. We, you know, that must have influenced the, that must have maybe caused legend or influenced or whatever. But the thing about, vampire, about vampire bats is that they are not native to Europe. They're only found in the Americas. So, you know, Europeans wouldn't, wouldn't have known it. The first exposure were, were um, when, um, you know, Spanish explorers came over and, found, and encountered the bat, like, you know, in the 1500s, let's say. And then, you know, how long did it take for that story to actually kind of work its way back to Europe and then spread around and, you know, eventually get to Eastern Europe or something like that. So the vampire bat, um, you know, and, you know, basically the, you know, the Europeans found this bat that drank blood and then it was named the vampire bat based upon, you know, the, the vamp, the vampires, uh, the vampire legends. Um, so vampire bat, so bats in general, surprisingly like are, are barely exist, uh, in, in vampire lore for quite a while. Um, it was believed that Stoker actually invented um, invented the whole concept of a vampire turning into a bat, right? Because because Dracula does that, right? Right. Uh, and it's it. I mean, nowadays it's it's you know it's a given that they that they do this. But um, for the longest while, Stoker was thought to have invented it. Um, I in doing research for my book, I ran across one scholarly article which found uh, it was like a couple literary uh, couple. Uh, literary instances that predated Stoker and uh, a couple, like it was like two like folkloric essentially references to, uh, to vampire, to, you know, vampires turning into bats and that, and that's, it's so, it's so minimal. It's so minimal that it was thought that Stoker had invented it. So Stoker can't claim to be the first to come up with that, but he certainly popularized it. And I mean, and now it's, it's like a given. And if you look at like, say like, you know, the Halloween vampire, right? They have the cape, you know, that mm-hmm. they might kind of hold up that looks like to look like bat wings and then they turn into a bat, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it's so funny because you figure, you know, bats, they're kind of these nocturnal creatures. You figure they kind of go hand in hand or hand in wing with, uh, with vampires in the folklore, but it, but it just doesn't ha- happen. Although vampires actually turn into lots of other animals in the folklore. They mentioned they, uh, tons of animals get mentioned as, oh, a vampire can turn into this or that or whatever. Um, but bats just for some reason are, you know, practically non-existent. Um, dogs actually is one thing that vampires, you know, mentioned turning into dogs and stuff like that and other sorts of, other sorts of creatures. Um, how about werewolves being the only other creature that's able to kill a vampire? (laughs) Um, so I, uh, I mentioned earlier, there's actually a lot of interesting overlap between vampires and werewolves. Um, so, you know, obviously in one thing is that vampires were believed to be able to turn into like dogs and stuff like that. So there's kind of a, there's already kind of a, a connection 
a connection with, uh, with that. Um, in terms of like, it, you know, I know like a lot of like movies and stuff like that have like vampires and werewolves, like kind of like fighting each other and that sort of thing. Um, but that's not really kind of, that's not necessarily how, how it worked in, uh, in the folk, in the folklore. Um, it was, uh, you might have werewolves that actually like, for example, there was a belief in, uh, in Normandy that, uh, a werewolf could actually come from a corpse. The corpse would, would, would sort of come out of the grave and turn into a wolf. Um, which is sort of which is sort of interesting because you have you have again this blending of different beliefs there with with um, well it's it's a corpse is an undead thing but oh but it turned into a wolf and so it's 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 like this werewolf it's like a werewolf really um, so it's not it's not even some like the terminology that that was used for vampires and kind of uh, some of what they the terms that got used would would kind of also mean a werewolf and stuff like that. So they they were they were kind of influencing each other, and it wasn't kind of like in the movies where like oh this like the werewolf and um, and uh, the vampire like enemies or something like that. There were some beliefs that wolves in general might attack might might go after vampires. Um, there was also an interesting belief where uh, if someone ate the meat of an animal that was killed by a wolf, they would turn into a vampire. Um, so again, you have these interesting kind of crossovers. Um, how about vampires' use of mesmerism? Yeah, that um, I I looked for that. I found like one story where this this vampire who was um, he he I guess in his li- life had been a wizard. He he goes, he like goes to like this, he essentially crashes a wedding and like he scares everyone away. Well, he hangs out for a while, I guess and has a good time, but then he scares everyone away. And then he, he puts like the, the bride and the groom to sleep and like take some of their blood in a vial. Um, the thing of it is, is that, so that was like kind of like one instance where sort of a vampire used sort of hypnosis. Um, but at the same time, the vampire was also like a wizard so it might have just been the fact that he was a wizard that he could do that. Um, but beyond that, it's, it, I really didn't find anything where vampires were, were sort of putting people under their spell. I think that's, that's kind of, that was popularized by Stoker very much, probably because, and also, again, in the 1800s, people probably would have been very interested in hypnotism or mesmerism and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, normally the, the vampires weren't kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of putting people under a spell. But and even before Stoker and some of the other works from the 1800s, the vampires had some kind of, were thought, in, those, in, those, in those works of fiction, the vampires had these kind of qualities that could kind of, um, uh, I don't say hypnotize, but just like people and stuff like that. So again, I think, that, I, think that, I think the whole concept of vampires hypnotizing people came out of, um, 19th century literature, probably because that kind of that resonated with with the readers. Um, what is your favorite vampire movie? Um, I have a few different movies that I like. Um, probably, uh, 
I mean, obviously the, you know, the classic universal pick, you know, universal Dracula starring Bela Lugosi. Um, that one's fantastic. Uh, I really like that one. Um, one I, one, another one that I like, although it is, it's, you know, it's not a perfect movie, but there's, there's parts of that I really like uh, was um, Bram Stoker's Dracula from the nineties. I remember uh, that one. Yeah. I remember that one. That one's very, it's very kind of, it's very lush. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, yeah, I think used used like uh, practical effects and stuff like that. So um, I, uh, I, I like that one. I like, um, I think uh, was it Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing really liked, really liked mm-hmm. his performance in that. Um, so that, that's, that's another vampire movie. Uh, I really like those are probably, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, even like the, uh, the old Nosferatu, um, it's a different kind of movie, obviously, because it's, you know, it's a silent film, but, um, it is, it's, uh, it's quite, it's quite good. I'm still good. How about yourself? Satanic rights of Dracula. Yeah, I know. Everybody knows that's my favorite. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean the ha- I mean the, I've I've seen uh, I have not seen all the Hammer Hammer vampire movies, but I've I certainly seen some, and they are a lot. I, I like them. I think they're a lot. I think they're a lot of fun. Um, one uh, one one show I watched recently. Um, it's on uh, it's on Netflix, and it was a co-production I think with the BBC. It was a Dracula uh, three-part series. Um, and I thought that I enjoyed that a lot. I, w- I thought it was a very kind of interesting reimagining uh, of the of the Dracula story. Um, so that's one I've watched recently that I, I really enjoyed. And I uh, wouldn't mind watching that one again. Um, have you seen that one? Are you familiar with that? I one haven't at all? seen it. No. It's really it's really cool. Um, it's three parts, and it kind of it, it sort of you know the the first part is um, starts in like the eighteen hundreds. Uh, with kind of like like Harker going to see Dracula, like the novel, but it takes some very interesting turns and the counts and kind of like how the count operates and stuff like that is very different. And then kind of by the by the third episode, it's like into modern day, and so now you have Dracula kind of interacting with the mod with the modern world. Which sometimes I'm always a little like I don't know how that's going to be, but I really liked I liked what they did with that. I thought it was I thought it was really good. Um, I have to check that out. Yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I I uh, I, I liked it. I thought it was, I thought it was a very very kind of interesting new take. Have you watched Vampire Diaries? No, I ha- I have not watched Vampire Diaries. I know it's very popular, but I have not I have not watched it. Did you? I did. You know, my wife started watching it, and at first I was like, oh, this is kind of cheesy, you know. And then I mm-hmm. got into it. And then um, there was a spinoff called The Originals. Yep. Which I absolutely loved. Oh. The, I, I thought that was better than Vampire Diaries. It has this character, Klaus, and, and he's like so over the top. Like he's, he's like very like, a, he's like a Shakespearean vampire. <laughs> like with, with all this crazy dialogue. Nice. And... Uh, I, I definitely enjoyed that one. Oh. Yeah, I think uh, uh, my wife, I believe, liked to uh, watch the originals. So at some point, I, I, will, prob- I will probably watch it. But uh, I have not watched it yet. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. How about the Twilight series? Um, <laughs> I where have, they sparkle. I, where they where they where they sparkle yeah i'm i'm not i'm not i i personally am not super plugged into the twilight series um i know i mean it's obviously 
it's immensely popular, right? I mean, the books and then the movies and stuff like that. Um, and the, you know, the sparkling vampires, people always kind of, you know, there's, uh, you know, some people kind of feel strongly <laughs> about that one way or the other. But one of the things that I, I kind of, I, I think about with, with this is that, you know, if, if you look at some of like, you know, the, the classic works, right, of, of, of vampire literature, they were adding things and changing things to the vampire folklore. Um, so it's not, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that the vampire has, there's this, this is the way the vampire has to be portrayed. This is what a, a vampire is or something like that. It's like, no, the, the vampire has been growing and adapting and changing for, you know, hundreds of years now and will continue to do so. And it's going to speak to the people of the time. Um, and so whether it was, um, you know, in the 1700s where people didn't, you know, were looking for essentially a, a scapegoat, some kind of explanation for what was going on, where it was, whether it was, um, you know, 19th century literature where people were kind of intrigued by this kind of suave, by a, a suave but dangerous nobleman, um, or whether it's up to today with like, a, you know, kind of a, a sparkly vampire that's, you know, going to high school or something like that. It, um, I think it's, it's kind of what, whatever the vampire is going to be, whatever it needs to be for the time. Yeah. You could hold a gun to my head and I still would not watch Twilight. <laughs> I won't do it. You, you refuse. <laughs> no, it's like, it's almost like sacrilege to me. <laughs> you know? Especially uh, after the stuff I grew up with in the seventies. Oh, sure. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a bit, it's a big shit, but I was, it's funny because I was, I was, uh, you know, talking recently to someone and you know I, I was saying how you know it's Sto stoker's work there's sort of no there's no way to kind of overstate the importance that stoker had right on our mod on our kind of modern vampire movies and stuff stoker was was you know his 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 shadow looms large yeah if we go if we and that was that was you know late 1800s right so you know what like 120 some odd years or something um if we go another hundred and something years in the future will people be saying like oh stephanie meyer and twilight like oh t twilight did such a thing for vampires we wouldn't have you know we wouldn't have the vampire movies we do today if it weren't hope for twilight not. i hope you not. know <laughs> you hope not. but you I don't you not. don't know because all the all those young people who are watching twilight you know as you know when they age and they and they maybe produce their own works and and you know what you know kind of it goes down the line who know who knows what who knows what'll happen no no, it can't go that way. Okay, I hear you. I refuse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially being a fan of the Satanic Rites of Dracula, you know, there's, <laughs> this is a far there's supposed to be blood and Satan and orgies, <laughs> <laughs> not sparkling. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about? I know you said you. And I'm surprised you haven't read the Anne Rice books. No, I haven't. I've seen some of the movies, but I have not. I have not read because the, she's the books. sort of like one of the people that brought re uh, revitalized the whole vampire thing. Was Interview with the Vampire? Yeah, that was very popular. Yeah, yeah, very popular book and then movie and all that. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm certainly no way would argue the the impact that that she that she had. But of course, you know, my interests lie more with the you know the actual folkloric accounts so mm -hmm. i've read 
numerous, numerous books going over, you know, different, you know, uh, beliefs uh, and legends and stuff like that. And then kind of going into uh, the, the 19th, you know, the, the 19th century stuff, you know, I've read Dracula and, and whatnot. Um, but some of the more pop, some of the, the more like the, the pop culture books and stuff um, I have, I personally have, have not, have not read. Um, yeah, I always say like, like, like three of, and I think I read them all in a row. I think I read Bram Stoker's, Stoker's Dracula. Then I read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And then I read Oscar Wilde's Picture of Dorian Gray. Which you like best? Um, you know, it's a tough one. I'm, I'm probably going to have to go with Oscar Wilde. Like the, the man slowly becoming corrupted? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like not even so much like the story behind it, but the w- the way he wrote it, mm. it was his writing I mean, style. I mean, wild again, like again, no again. His style, like his style, was just like that crazy, over the top. Yeah, oh, he, he was he was an amazing writer. Uh, I mean, his some of his his plays are are just brilliant, are brilliant stuff. Um, I ha- yeah, I've. I have read all, all of those all of those works. Um, honestly, I'm not a huge fan of Frankenstein. Um, for me personally, I, I kind of I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't crazy about it. I know that's like a, a wild thing to say. Um, it was it was it was um, it just didn't didn't quite speak to me. I guess. Um, uh, obviously, I loved loved Dracula. Um, a few couple a uh, couple years ago, I actually I was at. Um, the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia, and they had some of the original notes uh, uh, of Bram Stoker and uh, some of the original notes of uh, Mary Shelley. And so they actually had them out on display in the exhibit. So I actually got to see some of the handwritten notes um, by those authors, which was, which was pretty exciting. That was at the, what, the Philadelphia Uh, Art Museum? uh, It was the Rosenbach Museum. Rosenbach. Yeah. Where, Where are you from? I am from New England. Where do you live now? I live in New England. New England, huh? Because I'm from New Jersey. I used to from... go to all those places. Oh, <laughs> yeah, thinking, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to be from that area somewhere. If you're going <laughs> to, if you're, if you're hanging out in Times Square and Philly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I, yeah, I, uh, I am from Massachusetts. Um, I also went to see the Ripley's uh, in Hollywood and they have a vampire killing kit there as well. So, you know, I, I go to some different places. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so speaking of different places on your website, I think it was your website. Mm-hmm. Um, don't you write about um, like, like, like these strange things that you find in, in, in different places that you've been to? Yeah, yeah. So my website is uh, locationsoflore.com. Uh, and uh, basically, I just I write about um, places I visit that have uh, some kind of interesting legends or, you know, uh, you know, ghost stories attached to it or just, you know, things that are sort of off the beaten path, that kind of that kind of thing. Um, so like, you know, 
in there, I, I've written different different articles about some of the different um, vampire-related sites I've been to, and I have pictures and stuff, so you can go and check those out. But there's also, um, you know, stuff about uh, ghosts or other sort of strange things, and um, just sort of different different uh, different places. Yeah, I thought that was really cool when I was checking it out. Like, oh, thank you. I, I didn't get a whole lot of time to check it out, but I was looking. I was like, this is pretty cool. I remember like you had something about like the tar pits in LA or something like that. Yeah. 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 I did. That's yeah. That's the most recent one I, I, I did was, um, uh, the, um, La Brea tar pits, um, which are, uh, which are really, which are really cool. If, if, uh, if anyone's out, you know, gets out to LA, um, I, I, I definitely enjoy checking them out. It's, it's, it's pretty wild. Like you, you, you walk through this place and it's, it is like, it sounds there are these giant pits of, of, uh, tar, and some thing kind of bubbling and stuff, and they found all kinds of fossils in there and uh, and that kind of thing. So it's really cool to kind of walk around, check it out, and they have they reassemble a lot of the fossils and stuff. And in my article, I actually talk about like the one um, they've only ever found like like you know one set of human remains in there from the, from thousands of years ago, and they think it was actually a, a murder victim. They have like a whatever it is like a nine thousand year old murder mystery, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> Um, is, is there any lore behind the tar pit? Not, not really. That the the focus of that one was was um, just kind of mostly on sort of the surreal aspect of it and kind of the the murder, kind of the the murder mystery aspect of of the the purse of the bones that they found there of of that one human. I think it was the movie Volcano. In, in that movie, they show those tar pits, and then like. You know, it, it turns somehow it turns into a volcano and wipes <laughs> out L.A. Oh, it's, That's not good. Yeah, it's a great movie. <laughs> it has that guy in it from uh, Men in Black. What's that guy's name? Tommy Lee. Tommy Jones. Lee Jones. Yeah. Uh, I I did not see. Uh, I didn't. I didn't see this volcano movie. Yeah, it's a good one. It's fun. But yeah, I like the tar. I like the tar pits. There, there was that was a cool. That was a cool spot. Um, obviously I went to the Ripley's while I was out, while I was out there and I, uh, checked out the vampire killing kit that they have. Um, there's a bunch, I, apparently the, there's vampire killing kits in a number of Ripley's museums. So if I'm ever out by any others, I'll check those out too. Hmm. Um, so what is the, uh, coolest place that you've been to in the U S? Um, well, I mean, I guess it sort of depends on what you mean by, by cool right like because, what's, the, what's a place that that caught your imagination the most okay well um one place i'll one place i'll mention um is um the uh the old grounds of the medfield state hospital so this was this is in massachusetts it uh was um an insane asylum that uh that closed a number of years ago um so all the and it was like a huge campus with lots of buildings and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's all abandoned now. Um, but the, uh, the town does like, or at least when I, when I last, I, last time I was there, the town, I think it was, it was owned by the town now and they did let you like walk around it and stuff like that. They essentially kind of treated it as if it was a park. Um, but that place was just really cool because you're essentially walking down these old streets and stuff like that surrounded by all these buildings. It's like you're in the middle of a college campus, but it's all abandoned. Um, so it's got this very kind of surreal quality to it. And then as you walk towards the back of it, um, 
some of the buildings behind them have these like um, large uh, like chain link fences and stuff like that. So essentially that, so like the people who were um, the patients there, they could go outside, but they weren't allowed, they weren't allowed to roam, you know, Mm -hmm. so they were in these, these large kind of fenced off areas and stuff. So you can kind of walk through those and stuff like that. And you can kind of just do some of the, you know, the buildings are kind of like, you know, slowly degrading and stuff like that. So it's got a very, um, it's got a very powerful aesthetic. Um, We had a place like that in New Jersey too. It was in Skillman, New Jersey. There was a old um, asylum. Well, it was originally like I think for tuberculosis. Yep. And then it became an, like an asylum, and then it eventually closed. And it was just it was exactly like what you're describing: it was a whole bunch of buildings fenced in, and but it wasn't open to the public. You had to kind of sneak in there at night. Ah, uh, yeah. And get chased out by the security guard. Oh boy! Which even made it more fun, actually. <laughs> increase the stakes yeah um but so so that so medfield is is really cool it's also cool because it was um some movies uh were shot there uh it was a filming location for some movies um one of which was shutter island uh with leonardo dicaprio i remember that that one one. and uh another one they did some they did some scenes uh from um it's actually out right now the the new mutants it's that new x-men movie okay um, so I think they shot some stuff there as well. Um, so that's one place that I, I, I talk about that I like just because it was really, it's really cool and it's kind of off the beaten path and stuff like that. I mean, you're not going to get, there's not like a travel brochure that's going to talk about it. Um, I mean, you know, some of the other sites that for me were really cool were, you know, some of the vampire related sites I've been to. Um, so in, in Exeter, Rhode Island, I visited the grave of Mercy Brown. Uh, she was uh, exhumed as a vampire in the late 1800s. Um, and so you can, you know, I've, I've read about her. I've read sort of the, the account of her story. and I, I talk a bit about it in my book. Um, and I visited some other vampire graves as well. Um, so I went, um, one place that was kind of neat was um, in Chicago, uh, Lincoln Park, I believe it's called. Uh, it's like a park, right? It's just an open greenland, some statues and stuff like that, monuments. Mm-hmm. And then there's this one lone mausoleum in this park. And it is the last remnant of when the park was a graveyard. So it was like after the fire, they like moved the, gra- they like moved the graveyard but they left this mausoleum there because it would have been like too much work to move it. Uh, and then some people hypothesize that maybe there's still some, some bodies there and stuff. And um, there was actually um, in Chicago, there was, there was like this brief kind of scare about a vampire and some like uh, some kids actually went to, to this park on like a vampire hunt to see if they could find this vampire. Um, so that's kind of a, another cool story I talk about on my website. You can, uh, folks can read about it there if they're curious. Again, locationsoflore.com. Yeah, it's a really cool website, and I think everybody should definitely check it out. And I'm also going to put a link to it in the notes too. Great, thank you. I'll put a link to your website, and I'll put a link to your book. Awesome, thanks. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem. Um, during all this research, reading about vampires and stuff, did you ever just get curious and say, you know what? I'm going to try drinking some blood. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't, <laughs> haven't, I have not done that. Um, 
I've heard uh, blood pudding is not very tasty. So no. if I were to, if I ever were to move in that direction, that's probably, that would probably be my first stop. Um, but I, I haven't heard good things. So I will probably, I will probably avoid it. No, I haven't, haven't felt uh, the compulsion to, uh, <laughs> to consume, to consume blood. Okay. Do you like your steaks? Medium, well, or rare? I mean, medium, or <laughs> wait, well, medium, or rare? <laughs> I, uh, I like all my meat well done because I worry about germs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you definitely do not fall into the category of a vampire. No, no, I, I don't. I, I don't, uh, I don't sleep in a coffin or anything or anything like that. Um, so I know, I know I wrote a book about vampires. You, you might think I might, you know, I don't know, have a cool wardrobe or something, but I don't. <laughs> you don't own a cape? I don't. I don't own a cape or uh, like, a, like a ruffled shirt or anything like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but the, I, women, I mean, the women flock to you when you walk down the street. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, but you know, it's uh, there's I, I there's some some pretty cool gothic clothing out there. You see it online sometimes, and people take some pretty artsy shots. But I don't know if I could pull it off. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could pull it off anymore now that I'm old. <laughs> Although that might even make it a little bit more interesting. Maybe know. a cloak or something. I don't know. You can maybe. Well, a cloak I could definitely pull. You off. do do a nice do a nice gothic cloak. Yeah, I could do that. Anyway, man, it, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed our conversation. And, and thanks for being on the show. Um, do you have any plans for any other books? Um, yeah, I've I've got a few different ideas, uh, kind of you know bubbling right now. Um, uh, obviously, kind of uh, sort of folklore and supernatural beliefs and stuff like that are sort of my, my main interests. So probably something along those lines, but um, not not sure yet. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Can I make a suggestion? Sure. The Skinwalker. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the Skinwalkers. <laughs> Skinwalkers and Bigfoot, man. And Bigfoot. <laughs> Have you ever considered writing a book on Bigfoot? I mean, there's a lot of lore there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like there's there are people who are really, they really are, they know, but they they know their Bigfoot lore and they're really into it and stuff like that. Um, so you know, and they go out hunting for Bigfoot and whatnot. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know if that, if that if that would make sense for me, for me to kind of break into that. Cause I feel like there's probably, there's probably some pretty well-established folks out there that are, that are boots on the ground doing that kind of thing. But it's certainly, I mean, you know, really Bigfoot and kind of all, all, all these kind of mysterious things always kind of pique my interest. So I, I, you never know what kind of direction I'll get pulled in. Well, where do you think you're going to get pulled? I mean, you must have something brewing in your head because yeah, you're just well, that type of person I can tell. Yeah, I mean, uh, a number of people have asked me if I would do a werewolf book. Mm -hmm. um, so that is... You know, Dogman is like huge again. Dogman? Yeah, and it's like the same thing as a werewolf, especially down here in the South. Really? Yeah. Hmm. 
So I don't know, maybe, maybe there's, maybe, maybe that could be a direction. But yeah, some people have asked me if I, if I would do kind of a werewolf book, um, which, uh, you know, which I, I've, I, I haven't ruled out. I think I talk a bit about werewolves in, in the vampire book um, just cause you know, there's, you know, kind of different beliefs that apply to, to both. I talk about like in my book, I, I have a chapter about silver bullets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talk about them being effective against werewolves, but also, um, you know, to a limited extent effective against vampires. Um, so I don't know. So, so there, there's definitely some, some interest there with, with, uh, werewolves and there are a number, there are some werewolf accounts out there and stuff like that. So that would be kind of fun to kind of delve into those a bit. Um, but beyond that, there's, I don't know, there's all kinds of different sort of beliefs, you know, kind of beliefs or imagery we have about the supernatural that I'm always kind of curious where it came from. Um, so I don't know, I don't know, it might be, you know, I could potentially do a book where I'd sort of kind of go into a lot of different topics, like maybe each chapter would be about a different kind of thing or something like that. Um, it'd be sort of a, kind of a broad overview or, or something. So I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll see how it goes, but, um, you know, and obviously I'm writing the blog and stuff like that too. Um, which is, which is fun. The blog is kind of a nice outlet where I can kind of share my pictures and just sort of talk mm-hmm. about some of the places I've been to. Yeah. You know, I have a blog, but I haven't actually written anything. For some reason I just can't get myself to do it. I, I will say it's, um, it's, it's sometimes it's, it's hard to kind of like keep the momentum going because the way, the way I write my blog posts is like I research the thing. So like in the blog post, I have like a sources thing at the bottom and I talk about the history of stuff. So they're kind of, each one's kind of like a little mini research kind of initiative. Um, so sometimes it, it can be tough to kind of devote the time needed to kind of write about stuff. I, sometimes I, if I was a bit more casual about it and I kind of just, Oh, I went to this place and here's what I saw. And that's it. Like I could probably crank them out faster. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'm always saying to myself like, Oh, that's what I'll do. The next one. I'm just going to like, I'll just do a quick one and just share some pictures and call it a day. And I always wind up going down the rabbit hole and then I spend a lot longer than I probably intend writing, <laughs> writing it. Um, so there's a sort of balancing act. I think you, you, you play with like how detailed, how detailed do you want this thing to be? And that's great. But, you know, how much time can you devote to it and sort of what's the, what's your output level? Cause obviously the more time you devote to any one post, the slower your output level right. is. So it's kind of like with me, my pot. So I like about podcasting though, is like, you know, the amount of time I put into it is basically the amount of time I put into the interview. Mm, gotcha. So, so that's why I'm kind of able to crank out like five or six episodes a week and work full time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Cause now you can have a, you know, it's, it's about the conversation, right? Yeah. Um, and you're not having to like pour over materials to like write something that didn't, you know, to sort of like put something together. Yeah. All right, on your right, own. I find writing to be a lot of work. I, I've written a book and, and it took me a long time. I mean, I spent about, well, it took me about six months to write my book and then it took me about a year to edit it. Mm. Yeah. My, I, I want to say the, my book, it was probably a couple of years worth of work. I would say to, I would say to do, um, it was, it was kind of slow and method. It was kind of a slow and methodical pro- process. I mean, for, you know, for folks who are interested in picking up my book, like all of the vampire beliefs I talk about in my book, they're all, they're all cited. They all have, they all have end notes and stuff like they all have like footnotes and stuff like that. So you can like, 
you like when I say something about like, oh, there was a belief about vampires concerning X, Y, Z. Like I actually cite where I got that from and you can very easily discern all that. So there was like a lot of material I, I kind of poured through to, to put this thing together. And when I wrote the book, I tried to have it be a very sort of um, conversational style. So it's very easy to read and, and fun, I think. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want to sacrifice kind of the scholarship aspect to it. Right. Um, because one of the things that I found was when I was reading about some vampire, you know, vampire lore and beliefs and things is that sometimes people would say things like, Oh, you know, vampires were thought to do this and they would, they wouldn't say where they were getting that from. Um, and so then it's like, well, you know, are you sure? Where did this come from? Were you, are you being influenced by your own sort of modern notions about vampires and you might be superimposing something? So I had to be very sort of careful and judicious about sort of what, you know, what I was referencing um, and it's kind of where it was coming from and, and that kind of thing. Right. So it was, I've it had was, that happen with guests. <laughs> oh, <laughs> have just, you? Yeah, they'll just say something, but there's no, nothing to back it up. Mm. Yeah. And so, and so for me with, with, with the book, I, I wanted to, I want, you know, for, for people that did that are interested and in, in do want kind of want to delve deeper or use it as a reference or something like that. It's all there. There's, there's, uh, there's over 90 sources in the bibliography. Um, That's so, a lot of research. Yeah. So there, there's, there's, there's a lot there in every chat. So every chapter has like a little endnote section where, um, you know, if I, you know, if I, if I said, you know, there was a belief in this place that vampires did this, uh, you'll see where I'm getting that from. That, that's cool. You know, cause it, cause it backs up, you know, it shows that you did your work. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, that, and, that was important not, to me. It's not, it's not speculation. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That, that, that was my thing. I, I wanted, I wanted to really get at the core of this and be accurate with it or as accurate as I could be. Um, and so, you know, if I, you know, if I'm saying something in it, you can see where I'm getting it from and, and someone can, can look that up and then make their own, make their own call about it. But there it is. Um, so I think it's also probably a, a handy reference too. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm sure some of my listeners will be checking it out. Oh, I hope so. All right, man. Well, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, um, and have a great night. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle. Until it be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com and Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everythingimaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You know, yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee. The only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.